Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Last week's episode on the No Joke podcast, if you know, you know, a very interesting discussion has started on the Francisca Show discussion group. I had to ask myself, would I interview a child sex abuser if I had the opportunity? And what would I ask him? So I don't know if I would say no to an opportunity like that, but I did see so much come out of it. Lots of negative stuff. I was completely disturbed and still am, but lots of questions were brought up and the conversation was happening. I think that's important. I think it's important to talk about it. So we are continuing this series today on Jewish feminism. We're also bringing in Israeli politics and Shoshana will be responding to an episode with Sharona Eshet Cohn that we had a few weeks back. So buckle up and get ready for an episode that has lots and lots of information. And I'd love to hear what you think. Here we go. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Shoshana Keats Jaskel back on the show. Welcome. Hi, it's so nice to be back with you. And we're here to talk about several topics. First of all, did you listen to that episode or watch it that came out last week on Mendy Pellin's show? You mean the one where he interviews a child abuser? Yes, that one. So I think I watched the first like five minutes and then I just was like, I cannot stomach I can't stomach this I can't like I I couldn't do it okay well but, we'll but I, I've seen thing. the conversation about it you want to ask me a question specifically about what I think <laughs> sure you could tell me what you think I think that the experts are the ones to speak about this because they know how an abuser manipulates and I they know how an abuser speaks to make it sound like if, you know, if this hadn't happened, then he wouldn't have done this. Or if the child had done this, then he, like, if I, if I remember correctly, he said, you know, she had said she was uncomfortable at all, he would have stopped. Like, what? A child on your lap is going to say, I don't like what you're doing? It's not what kids, especially girls, are taught to do. Like, the idea that he's waiting for a child to tell him what's right and wrong is so abhorrent. Like, I don't even know who. Whatever, I'm sure Mendy felt like he was doing the right thing, but uh, some people shouldn't be speaking. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we got reconnected over a past episode that happened. I would like to start with that if possible. We covered some Jewish feminism topics from different angles, and you had a lot to say and it was very interesting and eye-opening, so I would like to give you the platform to respond to some of the things that you heard. So I think that actually Sharona had a lot of really good points that I agree with, you know, that um, what, what we from, we whomever we are, you know, my lens is not the right lens to look at everything, you know, and your lens isn't the right lens to look at everything. I always find as an Israeli, you know, an American Israeli, I find that Americans look at things around the world from an American lens, whether it's a race lens, whether it's a democracy lens, whether it's, you know, all, all the things that make American culture and American people 
understand the world the way that they do. And, and they judge it according to that lens. And I find that that leads to not only like not understanding a circumstance, but tragic inability to work together. And I, and so I recognize when, and just to, so people who don't know what I'm talking about, Sharona mentioned that sometimes in terms of feminism, we come in and we say, oh, this is what you need. And we try to solve the problem that we see, whether it's girls in India not having maxi pads or women in Africa having to walk miles and miles to a well, and we solve it in the way we think it should be solved, as opposed to really understanding the culture we're walking into and resolving it in a way that helps not only the girls and women, but the culture in general. So for example, in Africa, what happened was once water was so easily accessible, women and girls kind of lost that important aspect of their work and the community that came about by working together to walk to get that water. And so there's definitely what to say about how we look at a problem and, and the way we want to solve that problem. The irony is that I'm seeing what she's claiming is the problem here in Israel. Like she called it white feminism, which I find irritating, not because of her, but because of that whole phrase. Um, and, and that be, being a problem in Israel, and I'll explain to you what that means. In Judaism, as you know, because we've had this conversation before, women and men have different roles, different experiences, different obligations. There's no question. However, what's happening here in Israel, and I'll just give a little bit of a layout, is that halacha is being overwrought and crossed over with social and cultural norms, okay? So for example, if anybody's looking behind me, they can see this is a poster um, that we created to raise awareness of breast cancer amongst Haredi women. Why? Because Haredi women were getting tested 30% less for breast cancer than the rest of the population. They were even lower than Arab women. Why does that matter? Because there's clearly a problem in terms of getting health information to Haredi women if they're not coming in for the screenings that other women are at a 30% rate. And this is across the board, non-negotiable. Like it's not something we made up. This is something you can check. Um, and as a result, Haredi women, as a result of this and other factors, Haredi women were dying more of breast cancer, even though they got it less. So I was asked by a Haredi woman who was now my friend, but wasn't my friend at the time, can you help me keep my friends from dying? And she went on to explain to me that she doesn't even know the name of her body parts because talking about a woman's body is taboo. And she doesn't know the tests that she needs to take in order to maintain her health because no one talks about health and the health clear, health and the healthcare clinics in their pamphlets don't say the parts of a woman's body and don't have pictures of women and girls. So if a health clinic is erasing women and girls and women's health, how are girls supposed to know how urgent their healthcare is? And so she came to me and asked me to help. This isn't white feminism savior. This is, I'm asking someone from outside of my community to help in a way that specifically helps my community. And this Pashkavel, it's a poster for those of you who are listening and not watching. It's a poster that speaks in a language that the people can hear, whether it's uh, Hebrew or Yiddish, depending on where you are. And it specifically says, which is a Torah phrase, which says you have to take care of yourself. And she set up a hotline by herself and got 250 phone calls a year for three years straight by women and men saying, what is a mammogram? What do I need to do? And because of this, the healthcare clinics then started doing 
campaign specifically for Haredi women and girls, well, women at this point, because it was breast cancer, what to do, what to look out for, what are the signs. And we went to Rabbi Shorwai Shlita, we said to him, please write us a letter that says that getting screened for breast cancer, and please use the words breast cancer, quote Harav, because it's not embarrassing. It's not shameful, I should say. It's not shameful to speak about your body parts, especially when you're talking about health. And he did. And he wrote a beautiful letter, which is here. I'm happy to send it to anyone who's listening. And it talks about getting the, the vital importance of getting screening and for, for, for a lot of diseases and breast cancer explicitly. And so some people might say, you know, oh, uh, you know, it wasn't your place. I don't even know what that means. These are my sisters. These are people who came to me. These are people who are dying. These are mothers who are leaving their children for no reason whatsoever because someone thought their, bre- their breasts were somewhere immoral to talk about. And that's not something I'm willing to accept, and, and, and not at all. Now, that might be, you might say to me, okay, but Shoshana, everyone's going to agree with that. Everyone's going to agree that breast cancer is something important to talk about. Well, let's take it a little further. I, if anyone who is listening knows what I do, I speak a lot about the erasure of women, meaning images of women and girls being removed from the Orthodox community. And we see this, I can't imagine there's anyone who's listening to this who has no idea what I'm talking about. And I speak about the Aguna, the Aguna problem. Now, these are two specific issues where halacha has solutions or isn't even a problem to begin with. And society and culture makes problems. Okay, and specifically in Israel, because there's no separation between religion and state, these things happen on a daily basis. What do I mean? There are bus lines in this country where women are forced to sit in the back of the bus. I mean, I can walk outside my house, down the street, at any random day, wait 10 minutes, and I can take pictures or videos of a bus for you where girls are put in the back. My own daughters were told to put in the back, to sit in the back of the bus. Because that's where girls belong, quote unquote. This is not halacha. And this is not Judaism. This is not a shul. These are private buses or public buses? No, no. I mean, yes, there are also private buses, but these are public buses where women are told to sit in the back of the bus. This is technically illegal in Israel. It's technically, on the books, illegal to force someone, because of gender, because of race, because of whatever, to sit anywhere specifically on a bus. But they do it. There are magazines and, or magazines and newspapers and websites that erase women and girls every single day, all day. Also illegal, but it's done anyway. Now, race means they blur out the images or they just don't include any images? Both. Both. Depending on the image. Usually they'll do their best to just not have women at all. But, for example, Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, was just, you know, graphically covered in a local, in a, in a, in a, sorry, she was graphically covered in a recent image. I can find that for you. We posted it because that's their policy, not to show women and girls. Now, if you ask any Rav who will who's a decent human being, he will tell you, this is our halacha. There's no halacha. The closest thing you're going to get to halacha about women being erased is a man having to watch his eyes from intentionally exciting himself, which is a very, very, very far cry from telling women and girls they can't be seen or that they can't sit next to them on a bus or an airplane or et cetera, et cetera. We did a lot of this on our first episode a few years ago, and I'm happy to link that in the show notes. What I would like to get more into, you specifically said something about that radio, that how they didn't. Ah, yeah. 
So interestingly enough, actually, that radio station, there was a lawsuit brought against a radio station for not allowing women to broadcast. Not and sing, but to speak. Yeah, yeah, just to have programs. We're not talking about singing at all. We're talking about speaking on a program or hosting a program, anything like that. And the lawsuit was brought by Kolef, which is a religious women's forum, and the Tnu'a Reformit, which is the reform movement. It's actually a... It's the movement for freedom of religion, I believe. I'll have to double check that, which is also an offshoot of the reform movement. Now, just to be clear, a lot of lawsuits are brought by the reform movement for women. Why? Because they have the money. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I had to not do... There was a lawsuit that I wanted to bring personally uh, regarding something like this, and I couldn't because I didn't have the money for it. And I didn't go with the reform movement, which offered me free legal work because I knew this would happen, that someone's going to say, oh, you're aligning with the reform movement, you're not really orthodox, which is simply not true. A lot of the times, orthodox women don't have an option because, as I say frequently, the establishment, people outside of the orthodox world see us as part of the orthodox establishment, and the orthodox establishment doesn't see us. And so the minute we try to make change, we are already told that we're reformed even though many of us want that change or we want to prevent things from going, to, from getting worse. So this lawsuit was brought by Kolef, which is religious women, and the arm of the reform movement. But, the, but there were Faridi women who served as witnesses and not plaintiff. I forgot what, the, what it's called when you have to be... Basically, there were Haredi women. It was a joint project and Haredi women were involved. And I want... I think it's important that people understand that this isn't something that is just coming from the reform people who are trying to change the Haredi people. Like It's coming from I'm, within. Yes. Listen, there are thousands of Haredi women who have been begging for representation, for a voice, for years. All you have to do is go onto Facebook, look up Nebuchadnezzar, um, right, which, which comes from which means if we can't be elected, we're not going to vote. And this was started by Haredi women who were saying, we want representation. We want to be heard. Put us on. We are Haredion. We want the things that you want in terms of our community and our culture, but we need different things because we're not men. And people don't realize that, that the men who live in the Orthodox world just don't experience Jews in the way we do. And so women have been in the Freedom community have been begging for representation and been denied that. And so sometimes, yes, they don't have a choice but to turn outside of the community and ask for help. I'm not Haredi. I, I've never claimed to be a Haredi. But at multiple times, I have had the schuss to work with my Haredi sisters and peers to help them try and achieve that representation, those rights, the ability to be heard, because their own community does not provide that. And I think that's something that's, that was missing in that conversation. You know, it, this is kind of what bothers me, and I, I'm sorry that Sharon is not here. I feel like it's not right. You know, she's not here. I shouldn't, we should be able to, to have this conversation. But I would just say, one of the things that wasn't mentioned was that women within that community are seeking representation, seeking change, seeking to be heard. And, and it's not a matter of people coming from without and saying, you have to change, but there's women who are begging to be heard and, and they deserve to be heard in their way, in their words. So I think this is exactly for me, the opposite is what's happening here in this country. 
So there's a, an MK, Limor Son Har Hamelech, and she is from the Otzma Yehudit party, which is headed by Ben Gvir, Itamar Ben Gvir. She has, Baruch Hashem, 10 children, and she firmly believes that uh, that's the, a woman's most precious job is to have children. Now, it may be true. Now, I'm a wife and mother. I'm all for having kids and take, you know, as many as you can take care of properly. But to say from your perch in the Knesset that a woman's job is to be home and doing a, kids and family is a little bit ironic and kind of rings a little false because she's got the power to tell other women to stay home. But it's not simply an issue of ideals, and I'll explain what I mean. For the past 25 years, there's been the Committee for the Advancement of the Status of Women. It was created under another Netanyahu government, and it's pretty much what you would call bipartisan, meaning coalition and opposition members sit on this committee, and they deal with things like discrimination against women, domestic violence, opportunities and employment, women's rights. A lot of, I mean, I've been in multiple of these committee meetings where we spoke about mikvah rights, for example. We, in the Knesset, were fighting for our rights in the mikvah. And so, again, because religion and state isn't divided, this is our forum to discuss these things. So this committee was actually very relevant and didn't always do great stuff. I mean, how many years have we been talking about Agunot in the same committee, for God's sake? But it's not the committee's fault that things haven't happened. It's the other powers that be. Point being... It was a committee where women's needs and issues were addressed. And Meg Golan, who is a female in the Likud government, she is the new minister for women's affairs, which is ironic because it's like kind of like, oh my gosh, there's actually a minister for women's affairs. Like, that's awesome. We've been wanting that for so long. Except that Meg Golan and Limor have decided that it's going to be the way they define what women's needs and rights are. And so they have together taken apart the Committee for the Advancement of Status of Women. It was last week, the third vote went through that disbanded this committee, and they're making a new committee that's straight under Megolan, the minister, and this committee will be under her discretion alone, and it will no longer fight discrimination, meaning it doesn't have as one of its goals to fight discrimination against women. Why? Because to some people, women being erased and not shown in newspapers and articles and health clinic ads is not discrimination. And to some people, women being put in the back of the bus is not discrimination. And to some people, women being barred from certain jobs and areas is not discrimination. And so we have people, women, women who are determining for other women where they should and shouldn't be and saying that they're not being discriminated against regardless of the professional data and information that this committee used to be based on. And for me, that is more tragic than men pretending to represent us. It's truly, truly, it's been very hard for me personally to notice this and to see this. And so when I was listening to the podcast, it kind of just struck me as so Ironic, considering what's actually happening here on the ground. And just for one more example to be to you, this Limor M.K. Harmelis had a meeting. She held a meeting with 16 people, 12 of whom were men, four of whom were women. The media was barred, and all women's 
organizations, religious women's rights organizations were not allowed in this meeting. And the name of this meeting was, and I quote, the right to gender segregation. Meaning, they claim, to, they claim that they are representing Haredi women and Dati women by fighting for our right to have gender segregation in the public sphere. It's a, a few hard steps forward and then 10 steps back. Yeah, you could say that. But it's, it's, it's really terrifying, Francisca, because the concept of, as a religious woman, I want to sit in the back of the bus, or as a religious woman, I don't want any women to be represented is a very hard pill to swallow and a very hard thing to fight against when men can just look and say, hey, your sisters are saying that's they're happy with this and they're fine with it. This translates sort of to what's going on in Israel politically as it is, which I'd like for you to fill us in. And I don't have opinions. What I want to bring out here, I, I don't have opinions that I'm going to share on the podcast. Let's put it that way. Because Israel doesn't separate religion and state as a political system, does it look like if the Haredim, the extreme parties, win that our country will look like the Taliban, where you literally get killed and stoned for driving on Chavez? Wow, okay. I will still say no. I don't believe that Jerusalem will look like Kabul. I think is the name of it. I don't believe that Israel will look like a Taliban-run society in the sense of being killed for driving on Shabbos. But I can tell you that there are neighborhoods where if you drive on Shabbos now, your vehicle will get stoned. As a matter of fact, my husband is an EMT. A few weeks ago on Shabbat, you know, he keeps his radio on because that's what you do. There was a call for what they called a pigua, a terror attack, in Ramat Beit Shemesh Bet, which is strange, but could happen. Just, it happens. And so he and my son, who are both EMTs, they, they went to the call. And when they came back, they, they looked at, I said, you know, what? And they're like, you won't believe it. There were two non-religious young men walking through Ramat Beit Shemesh Bet, and they were attacked. And one of person who was looking at it thought there it was it was so violent that they thought it was a terror attack but it was actually extremist jews beating up jews who were they were actually just walking on job they were walking probably with a phone in their hands through their neighborhood on Chavez. and so the question that you ask you know whether it would be state sanctioned i don't believe so does it happen and can it happen more when we when we justify the extreme behavior and belief system? Of course. I mean, there are women, girls, if today, every single day for the past week or so, there have been reports of girls being thrown off buses because the bus driver did not like the way she was dressed. Literally, a 15-year-old girl today, I can send you the article, was thrown off the bus because she was wearing shorts. And in a lot, it happened, he didn't like her halter top, she was thrown off the bus. This is not legal right? The state isn't sanctioning this, but it happens regularly here. Why? Because the concept of telling women where they can be and what they can wear, and that I have the right to tell you that, I as a man have the right to tell you that, that has been sanctioned without it being enshrined into law. 
Because if I'm going to allow posters to be defaced and I'm going to allow ad companies to not show women because people have been ripping them down, if I justify telling a woman where she can and can't be, if I don't take down modesty signs because I say, oh, no, it's just them, I am sanctioning this behavior, right? So it's not like you can't say, well, it's illegal. Yeah, okay, but it happens every day, all the time. So on the one hand, your question is like, oh, it'll never happen. And on the other hand, it happens in, in small doses all the time. So what is the ideal state politically, according <laughs> to you? <laughs> this is a small question. I mean, honestly, I'll tell you this. I Fascinatingly, I put on my Facebook page, I really was just having a, a thought. This happens to me every once in a while. I have a thought and I just throw it on Facebook and see what happens. I, at the last count, I think there were 260 comments on this one question. That, and by the way, people are so mad at me for posting it, which is kind of funny because I'm like, you think this is the most controversial thing I've ever said, but whatever. Okay. So I, I'll, I'll just read the question because it's really, really quick. I said, if Israel was divided into two states, one where everyone lives according to religious law as defined by the people in charge, and one where everyone can do as they wish religiously, public transportation on Shabbat exists, where would you choose to live? And I can't see on my phone how many, but there's well over 260 comments on it. And, you know, some people are really mad about me suggesting such a thing, which is, where have you been for the past 30 weeks? I mean, there is a serious divide in this country where I'm a religious woman, okay? But the concept of telling me that we have religious freedom in this country, it, it's false. It's just completely false. Yes, a woman can be a Supreme Court justice in this country, but she can't get a divorce. You could have a woman who's in Aguna for 30 years running the Supreme Court, and nobody sees that. Well, not nobody, I shouldn't say that. But a lot of people don't see that as a crisis or an issue that needs to be dealt with right now. There's like a, a real cognitive dissonance that we allow ourselves. Like, and I just said this to, I love Ravioni. He's like, seriously, the best guy. But he was, he, God help him. I, he should have known better for, to wade into this conversation. But he mentioned something, and Ravioni Rosenzweig was a, a real tzaddik, like Mamasha tzaddik, and, and excellent, but in like mental health and agunot, he, he's really fantastic. He made a joke and then he said, but if you're asking me whether I'd want to live in a world where my civil rights were severely threatened and curtailed by religious law, no, of course not. Interestingly, I'm on several rabbinic online groups and in one of them, an interesting discussion developed surrounding this. Does religious law entail the limiting of civil rights? Would a halakhic state impose itself on the day-to-day -day lives of citizens? Pretty much all of the participants in the discussion, many of them farther to right than I am, said absolutely not, of course it wouldn't. That is so insane to me that people living today in Israel could say that a state run according to halacha wouldn't impose itself on the daily lives of citizens because for women, that is the reality right now. And to say that it wouldn't happen in a theoretical conversation when it happens in reality is so shocking to me that it, show, it shows the detachment. So I asked him, I said, Rabioni, how many of the people who said that were male? And obviously, all of them were. Because let's just be real. My womb, my right to have children, is held hostage until four men say it can be mine for free. I mean, we can get into, you know, Jewish marriage law and divorce law, but let's 
let's call a spade a spade. If I want to go and have a child or not have a child of my own outside of my marriage, I need four men to tell me that's okay. Like, this is the way it is in this country. You cannot get it. There's no civil divorce. So the idea that no, it wouldn't happen is so, I don't know what's more shocking to me, that they seriously don't understand how this works or that they pretend that they don't. I don't understand. Like, if we're going to move forward, if we're going to solve the problems in this country, if we're going to say, okay, we have religious people, we have not religious people, we have women, we have men, we have Jews, we have Arabs, we have Christians, how are we going to make this country work? Then we have to acknowledge how these laws, this country, affect the people who live here. And if you say, well, that's the way it is, okay. But then don't say, we don't impact your civil rights. Say, I believe that Jewish law it trumps civil rights, and that's the country I want to live in. Like, you have, to, you have to acknowledge what's happening here. There's no question. I love this country. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I'm fighting to the death for this country. But if you ask me if I'm afraid, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm devastated. It's hard when women try and pretend that this is good for us or this is ideal. I just want to mention one thing about the right to gender segregation. I went and I actually went, I drove around the country. I went to different grave sites. I went to cemeteries. You know, I went to Abmukka. Everyone goes there to Davin for shit off. And I remember 20 years ago, I am that old, when I went there and Davin there, you walked in. Yes, it was separate men and women, but you walked to the entrance. One went one way, one went the other way. Same with Kevarachal. Same with the, the, the cemetery in Spot. The Ari Mikvah was a, a cave with a spring in it. Okay? All of these places have now been created so that women have either no access, worse access, or back access. What do I mean? The Ari Mikvah has been boarded, not boarded over, but has built, been built up and it is solely a man's mikvah. Women have zero access to a cave, a public space, because men have decided it's for men. The cemetery in Sfat, which has the Ari, which has the, you know, the Arizal and has Rav Yosef Karo. I used to be able to go up to the kever, put my hands on the kever and daven Tashem. Now, women are put, I have pictures of this, behind a wall, behind the kever. So I literally, when I went to visit, there's a man laying on the kever, like prostrate, laying on it. And I, because I was a female, was behind a wall, behind the kever, could not get near it. The Rambam kever in Saifa is the only one I've ever seen that has completely equal access, right down the middle, same thing on each side. It's like a mirror image. The only place that holy, holy place, even the cocktail, Women have two-fifths, one-fifth or two-fifths, one-fifth or two-fifths, I don't remember, of all of the space in the Kotel because there was a, a landslide and the Mechitza was moved over. And then because of that, then the rabbi afterward, the Kotel rabbi, which by the way is a political appointment, he said that he couldn't move the Mechitza back over, and you could read this tshuva, because the women's section has less Kedusha, and we can't go down in Kedusha. We can only go up in Kedusha. So the women have to make ha be happy with what they have. And we do not have the inside air-conditioned access that men do. So my point in all of this is to say, there's no such thing as the equal access when you gender segregate. When you segregate, according to 
I shouldn't say that there's no such thing. I will say in theory, there may be equal access. In reality, I have not seen it. When you have concerts, women are put in the back or the bleachers. Same, by the way, they pay the same amount of money for the ticket, but the women are put in the back. Medical conferences. Medi doc female doctors have not been allowed to speak at medical conferences because they're women. And in other conferences, they've literally been put behind a machita in a medical conference. This idea of segregating in public outside of a shul or a, let's say, a beach. And by the way, there's separate beaches all up and down the coast and on every sea that we have, and no one has a problem with it because it's done right. But now this idea of gender segregation, women are in the back, women get less, women have no access. We female doctors are not allowed to speak. This is not something we can do. I'm sorry, this is not Judaism. Okay, so you talked about rights in women's mikvahs. Can you elaborate on that? And then the second point I just want to point out, you said a woman's, you know, fate about her baby is decided by four men. <laughs> is it going to be so much better if you have two women, like the women who dismantled the committee, who are making it work? So. so I can I can answer both of those. The first thing, uh, well, just in order of the questions that you asked, mikvaot are state institutes, meaning the state provides them, and every city has them, and every region has them, and every kibbutz will have one. It's just part of what is the Jewish aspect of this country, is that a mikvah is created. And the mikvah ladies, balaniot, are technically state employees, because they are employed by the rabbanut. The rabbanut is a state institution. And what was happening was that women were reporting that balaniot were not allowing them to tovel, to immerse in the ways that they were either noheg, meaning that was their minhag, their custom to do, whether it was, you know, how many dunks, whether it was when she makes the bracha, whether it was whatever, up to touching her, touching a woman when she didn't want to be touched, you know, forcing her to, you know, completely get undressed when she did not, but I'd completely get undressed and insisting that the balanit be there when technically speaking, she was allowed to uh, be tovel, to be to immerse on her own without someone being there. And so there were, and the, by the way, who goes to the mikvah on a regular basis? Religious women. Religious women go to the mikvah. So you're talking about women who are going to the mikvah, not people that were trying to force to go to the mikvah, but women who want to go to the mikvah and do taharat mishpacha. And they wound up going all the way to the Supreme Court to say, we need to be able to do this mitzvah according to our minhagim, or if there's a woman who has had, she's been sexually assaulted and she cannot be naked in front of somebody who's not her husband. She can't, won't, it will prevent her from doing this mitzvah or she still doesn't want to. It is her right to say to the balanit, please leave until I'm out. That's her right. But they, this wasn't being allowed to be done. So there were a number of organizations, religious organizations, that represented religious women suing the Rabbanut to allow them to be immersed the way that they wanted to immerse. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And, and one of the things that had to happen at the time was we had committee meetings or committee meetings were held here, here because it was the, the Haredi parties that were against the women being able to do this. And I will never forget this as long as I live. Hashem should bless me with a memory. Moshe Gafni of UTJ, United Torah Judaism, which is the one of the Ashkenazi creators, says, stands up in front of a room, packed room, standing room only, religious women are in this room. 
And he stands up and he looks at us and he goes, there's no problem in the mikvah. A room full of women who's saying to him, there's a problem in the mikvah. We've got problems in the mikvah. And he turns to us and says, there's no problem in the mikvah. It was for me so quintessential of like, you have got to be kidding me. And so this, just to bring it full circle, Francisca, because why not? This is why we need the Supreme Court. (laughs) Because the Supreme Court has been the place that has upheld our rights as religious women when the government wanted to remove it. Okay, your other question was about women in Big Dean, right? Well, women, yeah, getting that power and then taking it in the opposite direction of what you're fighting for. Yeah, so I'll say two things. When I I say that there are four men who determine what I can do with my womb, I'm basically talking about the person I'm married to. I mean, hypothetically speaking, in theory, the person I'm married to and the three Dianim who, if I want to get a divorce, have to decide whether I deserve a divorce and will try to convince him to give me that divorce if he doesn't want to. So those four men have to de- four men have to decide that not only am I worthy of it, but that, that you know to try and convince him to do it. Now, are there going to be female dianot? If you ask me and Rabbanovich uh, Satsal, yes, there should be, and there's no problem with it. But I would hope, and maybe I'm wrong, that a woman who is a dianet and has learned and has experienced her own marriage would bring in more of a understanding of a woman's rights for agency. And and, you know what? Let's not use these woke terms. For a woman's rights to determine her life and her freedom. Okay? Now, I want to say one thing that is evidence-based because I do think evidence is important. We know that when women are put into the Beitin process, the Beitin process is far more just. And I'll tell you what I mean. Whether it's someone who's just opening the drawer and pulling out cases that have been sitting for 6, 10, 12, 14 years and saying, hey, what about this? I, a true, true case in, 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 in the UK. By the way, if I'm rambling, just tell me. I have no idea how long we're supposed no, to No, I think you said that last time, but maybe I heard you just say it on your own podcast. <laughs> Should yeah. I not okay. say it? No, former, else. just by having a woman in the Baden office, there was a lot more happening and being done yes. because you just had somebody paying attention. Yes, yes. Okay. and beyond that, when you have women who represent women in Baden, Toanot, that's what they're called, they are able to use the language, the halachic language, the professional language, the Dayanim speak, to plead her case. They just have the knowledge. They have the ability and a woman is far more likely to tell another woman the things that she's experienced at the hands of her husband than she is another man, a strange man. There are so many intimate details and horrible, or not horrible, but just private things that are discussed in a divorce that she's just very unlikely to tell a strange man. And But, but when the woman knows, when, the, when another woman knows and she's able to advocate for her, things change and move and the whole process is less painful and that's evidence-based we don't even have to question that and the dayanim understand women more when a woman who has the halakhic knowledge but isn't going through the trauma is able to discuss the issue that's how they learn that's how they understand what women experience in marriage and so the best case scenario francisca is for 
all of us, regardless of our gender, to work together for justice. This shouldn't be a male-female thing. There shouldn't be, you know, women who are bad and men who are good and vice versa. It should just be everyone wanting the best for everyone. But unfortunately, I feel like we're surrounded by people who think they know what's best for other people. You summed it up. Is there any path to resolution here? I think what I'd really like to see is people listening a lot more. I would love to speak with, I actually tried to, we did, Sharona and I went back and forth on WhatsApp a bit and then it kind of fizzled out because I think just things were getting heated, not heated between us, but heated in the country. And I would like to sit and speak and, and I don't even know, we may be on the same page for 99% of things, certainly possible, but I think that we have to be careful when we are classifying the other, and I include myself in this, as doing something that is naked, that is uh, in opposition or that is wrong, when it may in fact just be that we need to work together on it. You know, like it, if someone says to me, I have the right to sit in the back of the bus, I can't say to her, no, if you want to sit in the back of the bus, you can, but you can't force me to. And that's really, I think, what it comes down to. If people want to sit segregated, yalla, sit segregated, do what you want, you know? But, but to force everyone to do so and to make that into the norm and the law and say that it's Judaism, I, I full-throatedly object to that for many, many, many reasons that I've written about for years. And I want to plug in your organization, Chokhmat Nashim, and your podcast, the Chokhmat Nashim podcast. Yes, please listen to the Fulkman Nishim podcast where we discuss all of these issues. Thank you, Francisca. Please listen to the Fulkman Nishim podcast where we discuss all of these things. Yes, part of Jewish Coffee House Network. And you have a WhatsApp discussion group that's very lively as well. And you can just stay updated on the everyday occurrences of the things you've been talking about. Can I take 20 seconds and just... Yeah. Say why okay. I like people. I kind of assume people knew me, but maybe. Yeah, I we just... didn't start with a proper introduction. And I'm sorry about that. That's OK. Should I just say yeah. real quick? Yes, absolutely. For people who don't know who I am and what I do, I've been documenting actually the extreme extremism in Judaism for the past, I think, 12 years at this point, mostly on my blog at the Times of Israel, but also in Jerusalem Post and the UK Jewish Chronicle, because that happens all over the Jewish world. And from that chronicling, we have created a, a community and an organization called Chokhmat Nashim, which is basically women and men who want a healthy, normative, orthodox Judaism. And we talk about all this stuff all the time because it is a worldwide global trend. And every single one of us, if we want a Judaism where our kids want to be in, we have the responsibility to make it look the way that it should. And that's why I talk about these things. That's why I do what I do. Not, I mean, yes, I live in Israel, but it's important for orthodoxy all around the world. And what are some of the services you provide to communities and some of the success you've seen? Right. So we raise awareness. And from that awareness, we have been able to push back against that extremism and, and teach people why it's bad. You know, why is it not good to not show women and girls? What are the damages that that does? And how do we prevent that from happening in our own community? We've had institutional success with larger organizations such as the OU, recognizing when this pushes in and how, and how it happens to us. We've had success, obviously, in raising awareness for women about the issues that play, that the potential issues that plague them, breast cancer, and in general, with understanding the importance of representation, visual and written. 
the importance of representation of women and women being able to have influence over the policies that affect us is very, very important. It's, it's simply, if we want a Judaism for our kids, we, we really need to be part of that solution. And that's what Chokhmat Hashim does. We help people around the world say, a lot of people come to us and say, what do I do? Or an aguna comes to, oh, I did rate my baiting. Okay, wait. Yeah, let's Should talk wait. about rate my baiting. Our two major projects that I'm very, very proud of. The photo bank. One is the Jewish Life Photo Bank. Yeah, where we have 2,000 and growing images of Jewish women, girls, and families. Why? Because we've gotten so used to not seeing women and girls that we've kind of just accepted it. It's like the lobster in the water, to use a very unkosher analogy, where the, all of a sudden the lobster is like boiling and dying and doesn't understand what happened because it was a gradual thing. So we've kind of accepted it. And the community wants to put women and girls back in a very healthy, sneeze way. And that's what we've done. So check out the Jewish Life Photo Bank. Use the images. Understand how wonderful it is when the Jewish community is represented in a healthy, positive way. And Rate My Dean is our second project by the community for the community, which is very simply what it sounds like. All across the Jewish world, there are Batei Din, rabbinic courts for divorce. There's no authority. There's no one overseeing them. If something happens to you in Beit Din, there's nowhere for you to go to complain about it. There's nowhere for you to go to raise awareness of it or to get help because there's no authority whatsoever. And so we kind of did a Yelp for Batei Din and people review the Beit Din experience so that I can say, oh, this Beit Din was amazing. They listened, they helped, they did not allow get extortion. And then other people can be like, oh, that's a great Beit Din. I'm going to go to that Beit Din. Just like when you Figure where you're going to get Chinese takeout. Or, and unfortunately this happens a lot, which is don't go to this Beit Din. I was not listened to. I was extorted. Or my case is still ongoing 10 years later. And we know that it's making a difference because we've gotten phone calls from Dayanib who are saying, who do you think you are? <laughs> and I'm just like, listen, we are the people. We are the people that you serve. Like how we want, the truth is that we're not against Dayanib. We want very much to make the system work. I'm an Orthodox person. I'm from. I believe in Torah. I cover my hair. I'm kosher. <laughs> my point is, we need Judaism to be the ideal that we want it to be. And that means taking part. And that means holding our leadership accountable and saying, you know what? This is not working out. We need to make it better. So Chochman Hashim is very, very involved in, in the community and projects by the community for the community and trying to model a better, healthier way for orthodoxy. Thank you so, so much, Shoshana. So great having you here. You're always so articulate. It's my pleasure. I can talk to you all day. <laughs> Thank you for listening until the end. If you didn't know, we do have a WhatsApp discussion group. If you'd like to join, message me. My email is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode in this podcast is a part of Jewish Coffee House Network, and I wish you a wonderful week. <music>